Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to worship the Lord together. And this morning we are beginning a five-part sermon series entitled, Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. And in this five-part sermon series, we are going to look at the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The goal of the series, in part, is to help us answer one of the most important questions that has ever been asked in the history of the world. The question was asked by Jesus to his disciples. Before he asked his question of surpassing importance, he asked them a general question and said, Who do people say that I am? And after they provided some of the popular answers of their day, he asked the more poignant question. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Countless answers have been offered in response to this question beginning during the life of Jesus and in every generation since then. Consider the number of magazines, journal articles, books, documentaries, websites, blogs, and social media posts dedicated to teaching us something about Jesus. Today we are in no short supply of those who will offer their opinions about him. In his book, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus, John Dixon, a theologian and historian, recounts a time when he was a guest on a national radio program in Australia. It was a public radio show, it was not a Christian radio show, but he was invited on to talk about Jesus. In the last segment, in the last segment, they invited listeners to call in and ask questions. So he said he prepared himself for the worst. He prepared himself for hard challenges. But he said to his surprise, everyone who called in to talk to him had a favorable view of Jesus. They all spoke positively about Jesus. But they spoke about Jesus only as a teacher. He said that they appreciated how he critiqued religious authority, demanded peace, and preached love and tolerance toward all classes of people. But he noticed that there were no mentions of his healings or miraculous deeds. They did not mention his claim to be the Messiah. There was no talk of his death upon the cross or his resurrection from the grave. The only thing that was on the table was Jesus, the teacher. And I think his experience on that radio program is indicative of a tendency to take what we like about Jesus, but ignore or lay aside anything we don't like or that makes us uncomfortable. What we see in Scripture is that Jesus doesn't make it easy to follow him. He didn't try to make himself palatable to the masses. He didn't present himself in a take what you like and leave what you don't like kind of way. Rather, he spoke of following him in an all or nothing kind of way. If you are a Christian, you probably understand this. You probably understand that you come to Jesus to learn about him on his terms, to understand what he taught, to believe what he said. You probably understand the problem with claiming that Jesus is a good teacher and only a good teacher. 
you can see how that's problematic because of the things that Jesus claimed about himself. If Jesus was only a good teacher, then the things he claimed about himself would be crazy. You probably understand this, and perhaps the Lord will even use you to talk with others who are not Christians and hold this view of Jesus. Perhaps the Lord will use you to help non-Christians see the problem with viewing Jesus as merely a good teacher. Perhaps this will provide evangelistic opportunities for you. You might be able to point out the claims that Jesus made about himself and that either they are true and he is much more than a teacher or they are not true and there's nothing good about him. At the same time, we need to recognize that the problem of picking and choosing what we like and don't like about Jesus is not exclusively a problem for non-Christians. We too need to guard against ignoring the teachings or aspects of Jesus that we don't like. The problem is not only for those outside the church, it is also a challenge for those of us inside the church. In challenging us to follow him, he will make us uncomfortable. He will challenge our sensibilities. He will call us to believe things that may seem foolish. He will call us to accept difficult teaching. He will expose the sin in our lives, the idols of our hearts, and the areas of our lives that do not reflect him. He loves us enough to do this. Of course, there's no way we can plumb the depths of Jesus in a five-part sermon series, but we are going to try to cover the most important things we believe he would want us to understand so that we can continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. We are going to do our best to understand Jesus through the testimony of Scripture. We want to come to him on his terms, not ours. We want to know him as he has revealed himself, not as we think he ought to be. We are going to try to see the whole picture rather than come to sweeping conclusions about Jesus based on one thing he did or one thing he taught. As Chuck Hickman said to me after the first service, to believe in Jesus is to believe what Jesus believed. In addition to this question, in addition to his question, who do you say that I am, we are confronted with the question, will we accept receive and believe all that he has revealed and all that he has taught. You see, in this series, we are not only trying to answer these questions, but we are trying to understand and know Jesus as he has revealed himself so that we might worship him as true worshipers so that we might worship him for who he is, and so that we might grow as followers of Christ, better understanding the path of discipleship. Lord willing, he will use our sermon series to grow our knowledge and understanding of him, to help us worship him for who he truly is as he has revealed himself, to better understand what it means to follow him on this path of discipleship. As I said, the title of the series is Man of Sorrow, King of Glory. The title comes from a book by John T. Rhodes where he writes about the humiliation of Christ as well as the exaltation of Christ as they relate to his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. 
while that is not the exact aim of our sermon series, his writings have proven to be very helpful. But he got the idea for the title of his book from a hymn written by Philip Bliss in 1875. We are going to sing the words of this hymn after the sermon, but I want you to take a moment just to listen to the words. Just listen to the words of this hymn. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we, blameless Lamb of God was he. Sacrifice to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He was lifted up to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The idea to do a series on the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which may have been a hymn of the first century church. Within a couple of decades of the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul wrote the words of these verses, and the church likely recited these words to remember and worship Jesus. Listen to the words of this early hymn. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." In these verses, we see the elements I've referred to, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the exaltation of Jesus, which references his resurrection and ascension. From the beginning, the church recognized these things to be central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the beginning, the church taught these things, recited these things, believed these things. Things. And as followers of Christ, we do well to reflect on these things, considering their importance for our worship and application to our lives. And so, with that in mind, we begin with the birth of Christ, or perhaps it's better to speak of his incarnation. To help us understand the meaning of the word incarnation, I want to provide a definition from theologian Stephen Wellam. He writes, incarnation is the term that refers to the supernatural act of the triune God whereby the eternal, 
divine Son, from the Father, by the agency of the Spirit, took into union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. As a result, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and forevermore, exists as one person in two natures, our only Lord and Savior. Well, I think this is a very helpful definition, but of course the big question for us is, does the Scripture support this definition? Is this what we find in God's Word? Is this what God has revealed to us? And I hope in the message this morning, we will see in the Scriptures that we will read that this is true. The prophet Isaiah was called to announce God's judgment on God's people because of their rebellion against God, while simultaneously preaching a message of future hope based on God's grace. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah was sent to King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah. At that time, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel had formed an alliance in opposition to Assyria. Syria and Israel wanted Judah to join their alliance, but Judah refused. Because of Judah's refusal, Syria and Israel waged war against the capital city of Judah, which was in Jerusalem. When this happened, we read that King Ahaz and his people were afraid. Isaiah told Ahaz that he did not need to fear, but only trust in the Lord. The threat of Syria and Israel did pass, but unfortunately, Ahaz put his trust in Assyria for deliverance. Ray Ortland wrote, In fact, Syria did fall to Assyria in 732 B.C., and Israel fell in 722. But the agent of deliverance, the king of Assyria, was a worse disaster for Judah. Ahaz forsook the king, the Lord of hosts, for a dreaded earthly king. He foolishly hired the military support of Assyria, for in his spiritual blindness he could not discern between his true ally and his true enemy. Ahaz's unbelief doomed the Davidic dynasty to loss of sovereignty under foreign domination. Now God must restore the throne of David and save the world. Of course, God had a plan to restore the throne of David and save the world. In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14, we read, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, and let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah spelled out the future hope in greater detail in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Roughly 700 years later, Jesus was born. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and I invite you to follow along. And I know some of you are going to be out of sorts because it's not Christmas Eve, and I'm reading about the birth of Jesus, but just hang in there with me, okay? Matthew chapter 1, 
verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Matthew's gospel account begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, found in the first 17 verses before moving to the birth narrative in verse 18. The birth narrative begins with the conception of Jesus and the events surrounding his conception. As we consider this passage, I think there are at least a few things that are important for us to see in these verses which are also confirmed in other parts of Scripture. First, Jesus was conceived supernaturally through the Holy Spirit. The first thing Matthew tells us is that Mary was found to be with child after she was betrothed to Joseph, but before she was married. Specifically, she was found to be with child before engaging in any sexual relations with Joseph. Because he had not had sexual relations with Mary, Joseph assumed she had committed adultery. In their culture, the custom of betrothal involved a legally binding contract that could only be broken by a formal process of divorce. And so Joseph sought to divorce Mary. But because of his righteousness, because of his compassion, he sought to do so quietly rather than bringing her shame and putting her in danger. But the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and confirmed that which that which was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. In Luke's gospel, we read how Mary asked the angel who appeared to her, how can I conceive and bear a son since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And one of the reasons this is significant is that it reveals how Jesus became man without inheriting a sinful nature as we inherit a sinful nature. We read in Genesis that Adam and Eve were created by God. And when they were created, they did not have a sinful nature. We know this because God's creation was good. And yet Adam and Eve disobeyed God's good command. They rebelled against God and rejected Him as their king. And because of their sin, sin entered the world. And all of the descendants of Adam are born into sin, are born with a sinful nature. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, 
Do you notice that the phrase all sinned refers to a completed past action? How could he say this? How could he speak of everyone as having already sinned? Wayne Grudem writes, But it was not true that all people had actually committed sinful actions at the time Paul was writing, because some had not even been born yet, and many others had died in infancy before committing any conscious acts of sin. So Paul must be meaning that when Adam sinned, God considered it true that all people sinned in Adam. We see in this passage the scriptural basis for what we mean when we say that we inherit a sinful nature. In Adam, all sinned. We are born into sin and we live according to our sinful nature. But Jesus was not conceived in the way that we are conceived. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and could therefore be called the child who is holy. He took on a human nature without adding a sinful nature. Grudem also points out that the miraculous conception of Jesus impresses on us that our salvation does not come through human effort, but through the supernatural work of God. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix our sin problem. We are sinners who are guilty before God. And that is a problem that we cannot overcome. We cannot save ourselves through our own effort, through our own works, through our own righteous deeds. We need God to save us. We need God to intervene in order to save us. Otherwise, we will not be saved. And what we see in the miraculous conception of Jesus is God intervening in a supernatural way to provide for us our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus was conceived and born in fulfillment of the prophecies. In his gospel account, Matthew made a point to demonstrate how the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures were fulfilled in Christ. He also made clear that the words spoken by the prophets were from the Lord. Did you notice how he said all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet? The Lord spoke through the prophets. The Lord foretold what would take place. The Lord made promises. The Lord made wonderful promises. And though hundreds of years had passed, God remained faithful to his promises. His promise to David and his promise for the line of David were fulfilled in Jesus. As you read and understand the storyline of Scripture, you see God's redemptive plan unfold. God has always had a plan to redeem a people for himself. His plan spans to eternity past. We begin to get glimpses of his plan from the very early chapters of Scripture, we begin to see it unfold and revealed in Genesis chapter 3. And God gradually and progressively reveals this plan to re redeem a people for himself. 
He was not surprised when sin entered the world. He was not surprised by the fall. He has always had a plan to redeem a people for himself, for his glory. He has always had a plan to save sinners, to reconcile them to himself, to welcome them into his family so that his people might live under his rule, in his place, enjoying his love and bringing glory to his name for all of eternity. That is his plan. And we see his plan unfold in Scripture. And we see his plan revealed through the prophecies as the Lord spoke through his prophets. And he brought to fulfillment these things that he said would happen hundreds of years later. He revealed these things through his prophets. And hundreds of years later, he revealed how these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. The scriptures are wonderful. They are glorious. They're miraculous. When you understand the scriptures, you see they can only be from God. There is no way they are man-made. God has revealed himself through the scriptures. He has revealed his plan through the prophets. And in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of these prophecies. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. His plan to redeem a people for himself involved God the Son coming into the world to save us so that we might receive the adoption as sons, so that we might be adopted into his family, so that we might know God as our father, Christ as our elder brother, and have one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are welcomed into his family. Finally, Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on human nature. Matthew records for us that Jesus would be be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The name powerfully reminds us that Jesus is immeasurably more than a good teacher. It reminds us that Jesus is God. Michael Green writes, Emmanuel means God is with us. It is not a prayer It is a statement. It takes us back to Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That child of prophecy, that child who was to be a sign has come at last. And he is no less than God with us. The Hebrews had such an exalted conception of God that they did not even make any image of him. Something which so amazed their Roman conquerors that they dubbed them atheists. People without gods. Against this background, Matthew claims not that God has given us a representation of himself, but that he has come in person to share our situation. What a claim. Right at the outset of the gospel, it is so ultimate, so exclusive. It does not fit with the pluralist idea that each of us is getting through to God in his or her own way. No, says Matthew, God has got through to us in his way. And Jesus is no mere teacher, no guru, no Muhammad or Gandhi. 
He is God with us. That is the essential claim on which Christianity is built. It is a claim that cannot be abandoned without abandoning the faith in its entirety. In the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became a man. John describes this for us in his gospel in chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing and all things that were made were made through him. And then in verse 14, John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, God the Son, took on flesh, dwelt among us, or as we read in Philippians 2, was found in human form. One thing that is very important for us to understand is that God the Son did not give up his divine nature when he became man. Rather, he added a human nature to his divine nature. So in the incarnation, God the Son, who has existed eternally as God, added a human nature, and from that time has been fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. God has revealed to us in Scripture that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But what does Philippians 2 mean when it says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself? Some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus temporarily gave up his divine nature when he became man. Some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus temporarily gave up some of his divine attributes in the incarnation. But this is not what the scripture teaches. Philippians 2 teaches that Jesus emptied himself not by giving up his divine nature or by giving up his divine attributes, but by adding a human nature. John T. Rhodes writes, The incarnation was an addition, not a subtraction. The Son didn't give up any of his divine powers when he became man. For a start, that is impossible. God does not change. He is also not made up of parts. As human beings, we're made up of arms, plus legs, plus brains, plus souls, plus... I won't go on. But God isn't like that. God's various attributes and characteristics Characteristics aren't like slices of a pizza, as if we could remove a few easily enough and still say we had a pizza left. He is one simple being. He is truly one. Jesus remains this one true God, never losing any of his powers. If he had given up any of his attributes when he came to earth, he would have ceased to be God. Of course, this raises questions in our minds. Well, how is it the case that Jesus didn't know when he was returning but God knows all things. How is it the case that Jesus got tired and slept, yet in the Psalms we read that God never sleeps? Most significantly, 
God cannot die, yet Christ was crucified and truly died on the cross. The answer to these questions is that Jesus experienced these things in his human nature without giving up his divine nature. Again, John T. Rhodes writes, In Jesus we meet one person, the Son of God, in two natures, divine and human. Both these natures keep all their properties. They don't change, mix together, or balance each other out. There is, of course, great mystery here. We'll never fully comprehend what it means for Jesus to be God and man or how his two natures hold together in his one person. But we can learn to think and speak truly, if not exhaustively, about Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is not a new teaching. The church has held to this throughout the centuries. We see this in the ancient councils and creeds. We see this in the writings of the reformers. John Calvin wrote, The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross, yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. When Jesus came to earth, he did not stop being God. He did not lay down his divine attributes. He is fully God and fully man. Do you see why it is easier to view Jesus as merely a good teacher? It is much easier to say this. It requires faith to affirm what the scripture actually teaches about Christ. It requires faith to believe what Jesus believed. Ligonier Ministries does a survey every couple of years entitled The State of Theology. And they survey many people throughout the United States to determine their beliefs. They ask very good, thorough, specific questions. They ask questions of adults indiscriminately, regardless of their professed beliefs. And they also ask questions specifically to professing Christians. In 2020, they asked a question, do you agree or disagree with this statement? And here's the statement that they provided. Jesus was a great teacher but he was not God. So they asked this question indiscriminately of adults in the United States, and 52% agreed, and 36% disagreed. They also asked this same question of professing evangelical Christians. Again, the statement being, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Among professing Evangelical Christians, 30% agreed. 30% of professing Christians say they agree that Jesus is not God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not call us to take the easy path. No, he calls us to follow him. He calls us to believe him, to believe what he believed to believe the teachings of Scripture. 
He calls us to believe in him as he has revealed himself to us. We don't want to believe in a Jesus of our own making, disconnected from reality, disconnected from the true Jesus. We don't want to worship a Jesus whom the world deems palatable. We don't want to worship a sanitized version of Jesus. We don't want to worship a domesticated version of Jesus. We don't want to worship a modern Western version of Jesus. We don't want to worship a postmodern version of Jesus. We want to worship Jesus as he has revealed himself in all his glory. He is immeasurably better than anything that we could come up with. Jesus is far better as he has revealed himself, than the Jesus who we make in our own image, than the Jesus who is acceptable to us. In John chapter 4, Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well. And in that conversation, he said that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus is not seeking admirers who will commend his teaching. He is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit And in truth, the truth that he has revealed to us, that he has made known to us. We know that what we believe may seem foolish in the eyes of many, yet we know that it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Once again, Stephen Wellham writes, Given who God is, it's only the incarnate Son who can redeem us by doing a divine human work as our Redeemer. As the divine Son, He alone satisfies His own judgment on sinful humanity and demand for perfect obedience. As the incarnate Son, He alone identifies with us as our representative and substitute. Our salvation hope for the payment of our sin and our full restoration as God's image bearers is only accomplished by Christ alone. As a result, our Lord Jesus Christ rightly demands and deserves our faith, love, and obedience. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we are glad you're here. You are always welcome here. And our greatest hope and desire and prayer for you is that you will come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Our desire is that you would recognize that you, like us, are a sinner. You have sinned against God. You are deserving of his judgment and condemnation. But God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way for you to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to him. He has done so by sending Jesus Christ into the world as the Savior of the world, fully God and fully man. And Jesus died upon the cross as our representative, as our substitute, as the only one who could be our substitute, the only one who could take the punishment in our place. He died upon the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And he rose from the grave conquering death. He ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And our only hope at the final judgment is in Jesus Christ. And so our hope, our prayer, our desire for you is that you will believe in Jesus and be saved. If you're not a Christian and want to learn more, we're happy to talk to you about that. We're happy to talk with you. We're happy to pray with you. Believe in Christ and be saved. If you are a Christian and you are a follower of Christ, then you are called to follow him wherever he leads. You are called to accept what he teaches, 
to believe what he has done, to fully put your trust in him, to come to him on his terms. We are called to come to him, to submit to him, to follow him. As our Lord and Savior, he rightly demands our faith, love, and obedience. And so we want to worship him for who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. And we want to follow him wherever he leads. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your wonderful and glorious plan of redemption. We thank you and praise you that you sent Jesus Christ into the world as the Savior of the world, fully God and fully man. We pray that you would stir our hearts to love Jesus, to believe Jesus, to follow Jesus, wherever he leads, whatever the cost might be. We pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray that you would grow us together as followers of Christ. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.